Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase, Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tesuetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Suetmik Ulu. And today's text, The Outsiders, is set in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is the home of the Cherokee, Muscogee, Creek, and Osage nations. Yeah, so folks, you just heard basically our, our attempt to retcon our land yes. acknowledgement. We talked about it in the last minisode, where we're going to begin acknowledging the lands on which the stories that we're talking about have been told or filmed. Yes, exactly. And uh, trying to be aware of territoriality and land, even in contexts where we're not speaking about it explicitly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, as you mentioned, Brenna, we are talking about The Outsiders. By S.E. Hinton, a classic from the 1960s that many of our listeners probably read in high school. I'm pretty sure I did. I know that we also read, like, a Canadian junior version of this book called Let It Go. Yeah, yeah. It was called Let It Go. And I remember the tagline from that book was, Let It Go, Red. Let It Go. Which I, in my head, in my brain is right alongside Stay Gold, Pony Boy. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So there's like a CanCon version of it. (laughs) I don't remember anything else about that book except Let It Go, Red. So it may not be anything like The Outsiders, but I remember there were two boys and I remember they were like, you know, disadvantaged in some capacity, like in terms of, I think they were, one was really poor and one might have been homeless and then they fight. So to me, basically The Outsiders. (laughs) (laughs) interesting yeah okay i mean i can see it there's something to be said about having a kind of iconic tagline right it's pluses and minuses right because on the one hand it is iconic and on the other hand it's like so iconic that when they actually said it in the movie i kind of chuckled oh really (laughs) a little bit oh i know but it's so like you've seen it parodied so many zillion times you know that is true yeah so (laughs) anyway we are talking about the book today and the film and we watched the complete novel cut of the film right which was made later yes so this is a film that was originally made in 1983 and it had a runtime of just over an hour and a half and it was a little criticized because it's not as detailed a adaptation as it maybe could have been. Although the scenes were shot, so this mm-hmm. was Coppola's decision to remove some of that footage. So he went back and edited in 22 minutes of additional footage, took a few scenes out of the theatrical cut, and then released it at just under two hours. And that's the version that we have watched. So it's actually quite a straightforward adaptation in that sense. My favorite piece of trivia about the movie is that, like, a lot of people had been complaining to Francis Ford Coppola about the missing scenes for, like, a really long time. But mm-hmm. then his granddaughter read The Outsiders in school and watched the movie and was like, old man, what the hell? <laughs> Granddad, we <laughs> need to talk. <laughs> and that's why he re-released it. I just love that. Well, clearly what we've learned in doing this particular episode and thinking about Francis Ford Coppola is that he is very susceptible to the whims of children and librarians. <laughs> either of those groups ask him to do things he will apparently do it (laughs) there was apparently a very short-lived tv series uh, on fox in the 90s that picks up where the film ends yeah it's gonna be a hard no for me yeah we didn't watch it i'm just letting our (laughs) listeners know we didn't watch it uh, nor did we express any interest in watching it Well, interestingly enough, and this is something I realized only as we were beginning the podcast, that we had also talked about potentially tackling at least an episode of the Korean or K-Drams version of The Outsiders, which is a television show available on Netflix. Sadly, we did not get to that. I will say that the TV series, the American TV series from the 90s, stars two actors who have the same sort of dirtbag aesthetic as many of the actors in this film, which nice. is, it had both David Arquette and Billy Bob Thornton in it. Perfect. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I can see it. I don't want to watch it. 
they made 13 episodes and I think they only aired five of them. Never, oh, never a great sign. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So, Brenna, yeah. what is The Outsiders about in case folks have not read it or have not read it in many, many years? Yeah. So, The Outsiders, a novel by S.E. Hinton, published in 1967. It's very much, um, I don't know, in some ways I think of it as the archetypal coming of age story for young men mm-hmm. because it's got everything. It's got a little bit of sort of forlorn romance. It's got a whole lot of violence. It's got some being on the run. Yep. It's sort of got all the coming of age staples. But the protagonist is Ponyboy Curtis, and (laughs) he's a greaser. And the opposite rival kind of gang gang is the wrong word, I think. Like, it's more like a, it's more like a, like almost a socioeconomic affiliation, right? Like you're born 100%. into the greaser side or you're born into the socias, which P.S. First time I read this book, definitely thought it was the socks. Yep. Yep. Definitely went to read aloud in grade nine. <gasps> oh no. Definitely called them the socks. <laughs> I mean, fair. That seems like a reasonable thing to assume. It's one of those pieces where when you're reading something in your head, you're pronouncing it, and then you realize, oh, I've never said this aloud, and yep. then you have to embarrass yourself publicly. Yeah, it's that sinking moment right before, and you're like, but in this case, I remember being very confidently like, the socks. The socks. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. I know. I'm a genius. Anyway, so these are the two rival sort of sides. And uh, the greasers are the working class kids, basically. And the socias are the the rich kids, Mm -hmm. basically. Middle, upper middle class to wealthy. Exactly. Ponyboy lives with his two brothers, Derry and Soda Pop. Daryl has a normal name. They call him Derry, but his name is Daryl. And then we have Soda Pop and Ponyboy. And the only explanation we get for that in the text is that their dad liked creative names. Mm-hmm. It's I want like more. He decided after, <laughs> like Daryl's too much of a regular name. Yeah. I don't like it. I need to go off the deep end with these uh, next two. I accidentally made a boring kid. I gotta make two interesting ones now. Right. I found that weird because I really just wanted more information about the names. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Essie Hinton clearly doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> no, she doesn't care at all. And the parents are dead. So, oh yeah, that's another way. It's a typical coming of age story. Dead, Dead parent parents. club. Yep. So Derry is old enough to look after his two brothers, but um, they're kind of always on a little bit of a knife's edge around getting into trouble because any wrong move and Soda Pop and Pony Boy will be sent to a boy's home. Mm-hmm. There's a subplot that's never really unpacked that Soda Pop has gotten a girl pregnant and she's left for Florida to go and have the baby, I presume. Yes. He would like have liked to have married her. He still kind of wants to marry her, but Mm -hmm. he can't. So, like, Soda Pop has this whole backstory going on that we never learn really anything about. Well, no, because, and we'll get into this more in a little bit, but because the story is told in first-person narration, and there's a bit of a framing device that this turns out to all be a written account that Ponyboy submits for class, Mm -hmm. we're very much stuck in the grandiose idolization of Soda Pop, Mm -hmm. and as a result, Ponyboy does not see any of these other things that are actually happening in particularly Soda Pop's life, but really in anybody else's life. He sees everybody in one light, Mm -hmm. like you are this and nothing else. And as a result, his worldview is very naive and idealistic. Yes. And interestingly, in spite of everything he goes through, it doesn't really get much more complicated by the end of the text. Like, no, he finds out those details about Soda Pop and he there they have a big emotional sort of moment where Soda Pop has been feeling the tension of being the middle child trying to hold these two fractious brothers together. Mm -hmm. But Not to any kind of satisfying resolution. Not really. No. No. There aren't really a lot of grand arcs in this book, if we're being honest. People kind of stay the same. Yeah, it's extremely plot driven. So I guess I should say what the plot is. Um, (laughs) One night, Pony Boy and his pal Johnny are walking by themselves. And they go into a park and they get surrounded by some socias. And the socias try to drown Pony Boy in the fountain. But before they can achieve that, Johnny stabs Bob and actually kills him. And the rest of the socias take off. Mm -hmm. I know we're not talking about the film right now, but Joe, that scene where the red like comes in. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Disturbing, I'm sure, for you. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I looked at the artistry as opposed to thinking about the humane implications. (laughs) 
well, it's, you know, we'll talk about the film, but it's kind of easy to forget that these are people. So they go and get advice from their friend Dallas, Dally, um, who tells them how to go on the run. Basically, he gives them a gun, he gives them some money, he tells them there's a deserted church in Windricksville, which is one train stop away on the freight line, and they can go and hide out there until he comes up with a plan for them. So mm -hmm. that's what they do. And a bunch of the book is just um, like being in an abandoned <laughs> church for a while. Yeah, being outside of the city and away from the greaser life. And it gives Ponyboy a chance to realize that he, well, both he and Johnny would like to live in a world where they're not quite so defined by their social class, where they mm -hmm. have a few more options and a few more choices and get to be seen as human beings, which isn't really an option for them in the world they inhabit. Right. They eventually, Dally comes to check on them, and Johnny says, you know what? I'm going to give myself up. That's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. They go out for lunch. When they return to the church to get their things, they discover that it's on fire. Johnny and Ponyboy don't hesitate. They run into the church because there is a school group having a picnic on the grounds, and two of the kids or three of the kids or something have wandered into the church. Mm -hmm. So the boys run in. They save all the kids. Ponyboy gets out, but Johnny is hit in the spine by um like a falling, a falling beam. beam yeah and dally pulls him out okay but he's quite severely burned and his back is broken so the boys go from having been fugitives on the run to being heralded as heroes for saving these children because mm -hmm. like apparently nobody cares that bob's dead anymore not really it's just like well these kids were worth more than bob i mean bob was for sure worth more than these greasers but then the greasers <laughs> saved the kids so what are you gonna do the social hierarchy is very well-defined, Brenna. <laughs> Kids, then socias, and then greasers. It's extremely explicit. <laughs> but also, you're getting too granular. Hurry oh, up. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Okay, so anyway, eventually Johnny dies, and that yeah. makes Dally go completely cuckoo. Yeah, and he, he loses his mind a little. He does, yeah. He can't cope with the grief of losing Johnny, because Johnny actually was, like, turning into a good person, and Dally... Mm -hmm refuses to do that so yeah. he basically robs a convenience store in order to attract the police and then he almost wants to die by cops oh it's suicide, totally right? death by police absolutely yeah. yeah he basically taunts them but then like, he tells the boys to meet him in a park so that they can all watch so they can all watch the police shoot him horrifying it's a bit horrifying and the film is particularly horrifying but also kind of strange in that moment, because the police are, like, fine with a giant gang of boys just descending on the person they just murdered. Anyway, it's fine. Whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They have a big fight to sort of avenge Johnny's death, which is absolutely the opposite point that Johnny wanted them to do. Oh, that happens uh -huh. before Dally's dead. Anyway, so there's a big yes. fight. But they, they beat the Soches. And it's, like, this big deal. They beat what the Soches. quote, beat the Soches. I, oof. <laughs> kids what are you talking about it doesn't work this way because you have a rumble does not mean that all of your problems are resolved <laughs> no no it doesn't and that's what one of the socias who declines to fight that day says to pony boy he's like we're still gonna have all the advantages and you're still mm -hmm. gonna have none of the advantages doesn't really matter what happens in this fight but yeah. boys like dally can't see past the notion that they can violence their way to success right and ultimately i think what breaks dally is that he he and Ponyboy go to tell Johnny that they won the fight, and Johnny's like, yeah. I, I don't care. I don't dying. care. Like, you've completely missed the point of my death. Mm -hmm. Wow. Like, great book report there, Dally. Yeah. And then that's when Dally sort of breaks in half. Yeah. But at the end, everything is okay, because this is going to make a really good English assignment. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> There's a threat that Ponyboy will be separated from his brothers and put into the foster care system, and that doesn't yes. happen. Yes. There's a suggestion that Soda Pop, yeah, is actually deeply traumatized by all the fighting that his brothers have put him through, and that is resolved quickly and easily. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, yeah, this becomes an English paper. I feel like we're meant to assume that because Ponyboy is the most eloquent and grade motivated of all of these characters, there's a presumption that he will be okay because he will be able to continue his schooling and go on to bigger and better things. Mm. Yeah. But it's, that's supposition. That's not actually contained within the text. All we know is that when I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the oh, darkness no. of the movie house, I had only two things on my mind. Paul Newman... And a ride home. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most explicit frame narratives we've ever yes. read. 
begins and ends in the exact same spot. Yep. Okay, so people were actually quite excited when we announced that we were covering this. When I posted that I was watching the movie, I got a lot of feedback about people just talking about how much they love this text. Mm -hmm. And Brenna, I'm curious, why do you think that is? I think there's a bunch of things. I think that definitely Essie Hinton changed the game for young adult literature. Like, there's no doubt about it. So she was 15 when she wrote this book. At least the first draft of it. bananas. It is bananas. And she actually achieved that success while she was still a teenager. So it's not like she wrote it and then, you know, one day in her Master's of Fine Arts program, like, dusted it off. Mm -hmm. This isn't 15 years later. This is, I wrote this, I got it published. It becomes a phenomenon. Yes. And she, you know, she was only born in 1948 and it published in 1967. So she was like 19 when it hit and it hit huge and it hit immediately. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a significant, this idea of a teen writing for teens. It's something that is much more common now than it would have been in the 60s, you know, Essie Hinton is at the emergence of teen culture as a counterculture too, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Starts in the 50s, but really by the 60s, youth this culture. This is when it's really taking root. Yeah, and it's really pushing sort of the radical politics and violence and sexuality, all these things. And so with The Outsiders, we have a novel that is actually encapsulating that energy written from somebody on the inside of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this book frequently gets raised within the realms of authenticity, right? Mm -hmm. So this is written from the perspective of a teenager who understands teenagers who can speak that language. So, you know, we've had issues with authors whose voices do not come across authentically. And I do kind of want to flag that uh, I will acknowledge that I didn't know that Essie Hinton was a woman Mm -hmm. until only just recently. I mean, I think that's actually by design. There's a reason it wasn't published under Susan Hinton as opposed to S.E. Hinton. Yeah, it was actually her publisher encouraged it. She he, he just thought that male book reviewers would dismiss it. Right. Yeah. I will say, to me, knowing that and then doing the reread for the podcast, I definitely got a certain romanticization of these characters. It's very much what a teenage girl imagines teen boys you know, they're, they're all so emotional, mm-hmm. like emotionally vulnerable, in touch with their emotions. It's frequent outbursts of both passion and anger. And I feel like she is actually in love with the idea of these men. Yes. And wants to save them. Yes, absolutely. I think the other reason people love this book is because of just straight up nostalgia. Like a right. lot of people read this book in high school, grade nine, grade 10. A lot of people stumbled upon it for themselves. And I think it's one of those books that is often an introduction to the more complicated content of adult fiction, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, it's obviously extremely violent. (laughs) Well, as you said, it's almost burying the lead, but the whole book is about socioeconomic class. Yes, yes. And I think struggle, right? And it's for I think a lot of people, it's the first book that they pick up that is about struggle in a way that's relatable. So I think all of those things make it a book that people want to, I think when we have a book that has this kind of, like it takes up this kind of space in the cultural psyche, like we want to hear what other people think about it. We want to hear if our experiences are the same or different from the way other people have read it. And I think Mm -hmm. that's why when people see you watching The Outsiders, they're like, oh, I want to know, like, what does Joe think about it? I want to know. Because we all have a relationship to a text like this. Right. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's so pervasive, everybody can speak to their relationship to it. And as you said, they want to know whether, okay, what's your take on this? Is it the same as mine? And I don't know. I mean, I didn't realize that this book was actually set in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. That almost makes me a little angry because everything that we've learned about Tulsa and the Tulsa massacre Mm -hmm. and just the relationship to race makes me a little frustrated that this is such a white text Mm -hmm. in particular. I don't think in the 60s you would have had that kind of acknowledgement like they would have been a very segregated. The book makes the film sorry makes a very sidelong comment on 
race anyway when we see the gas station scene where the mm-hmm. Hispanic man, we don't know anything about him, but he's defending his car from this like gang of teenagers. Yeah. But that's it. And it's interesting because all of her books are set in Oklahoma. I think all of them are set specifically in Tulsa. She only wrote five young adult novels, Joe. Mm-hmm. But four of them were adapted and two of them were adapted by Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, I didn't realize because I knew that Rumblefish was a thing, mm-hmm. but I've never seen it. I didn't realize that Matt Dillon was in two. No, that Matt Dillon was in three of these adaptations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seems like it had a bit of a cultural moment. And what's fascinating is most of those films are from the 80s. Yes. So yeah. it almost seems like YA and particularly S.E. Hinton texts were having a moment when they realized, oh, these are vital, important, but also nostalgic texts. And I think there's something to be said about the fact that these films got made in the 80s and they're all set in the 60s. Yes, it reminds me of Stand By Me too, right? Mm -hmm. That idea of a version of the 60s that allows you to be nostalgic, but in all of these examples is also really, really dark. Yes, which is funny, right? Because usually when we think of nostalgia, we think of a yearning for the past and for simpler times. Mm-hmm. And in a way, this book is very, very simple, right? Mm-hmm. As you said, it's very plot driven, but it's also pretty straightforward. Like it's not complicated to follow the story. No. And yet, this is a past that I would not want to revisit because absolutely not. these are tragic characters in impossible situations. And there is darkness on the horizon for everyone in this book. Yes, Yeah, it's not a world I want to revisit. Well, honestly, much the same way I felt. I mean, I know that you had a bit bit of a different reaction to the body, but I don't want to go back to that time either. Like, those kids have all that freedom because they're neglected as hell. It's the same in this story, right? Yeah. The lack of adults in this book is shocking. There's one adult that we see, because I I don't consider Derry to be an adult, really. So the only adult that we actually see is Johnny's mother. And she is presented as a drunk who blames him for his own condition yes. after he becomes paralyzed. Yes. Yeah. And she's she's mad that he's caused them so much worry and stress. It's like he's, he's literally wow. dying. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I will confess that I find Ponyboy's sort of limited perspective and evaluation of his friends a little bit frustrating. Yeah. I think this is an adult thing as opposed to a teenager thing. Mm-hmm. I am so fascinated with Johnny. To me, this book is actually entirely about Johnny. And it just so happens to be a story told by Ponyboy. It's it's a story told by Ponyboy and he doesn't realize that it's about Johnny. Because every time the camera takes its focus off of Johnny, I mean like the metaphorical camera in the book. Right, right. (laughs) Everything slows right down for me. Like I want to know about this kid whose family life is so terrible that he frequently sleeps on like an old car seat in a abandoned field mm-hmm. oh, that's so tragic the kid i want to know more about and then he dies and he dies without us knowing anything about him mm-hmm. and ah! seemingly you know everybody's shook up but it also feels like a day later we've already moved on because that's what life demands of these characters. Everybody's still got to go to work. Everybody's still got to get food on the table. And you're just thinking, but Johnny is dead. Yeah. <laughs> like Your friend, Johnny, the emotional core of this group, the only person who really was in touch with their feelings, the only person who saw that they needed to escape from this life, and none of you can even grieve properly because they're so immersed in the horribleness of the day-to-day. Yep. I'm laughing because it's so upsetting. It is so upsetting. I I, I many times think that we're talking about a book written by like a 15-year-old, 16-year-old young woman. Mm -hmm. She didn't really have a clear sense of that exact idea, like what the emotional core of the book was. And that the book has been so successful is credit to her in so many ways. Mm -hmm. But it is frustrating because sometimes I wonder what the outsiders would have looked like if she had just held on to it for a few years. Right. I mean, I don't want to evoke the kissing booth. No. But I am thinking about the conversations that we had about teenage writers Mm -hmm. and how sometimes the end result will be that much more satisfying if there's an opportunity to reflect and 
really think about, okay, what is it that I'm trying to do with this story? Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I mean, the comparison ends there. Kissing Booth is a terrible book. This is actually quite a good book. And maybe that's just me being an adult who's not responding quite as strongly to it. But I feel like this book could have been improved with a little bit more age. Yeah, I, I do too. I just, because I think just some distance from... I mean, she's in love with Ponyboy in particular, right? Like, Mm -hmm. the focus on Ponyboy as this character for whom writing will be salvation, literature will be salvation, right? Like, just like me. Exactly. Just like me, Susan Hinton. I find my passion through writing, and then I fall in love with this character who also (laughs) finds passion in writing. And I forget to tell you about the more interesting characters! Yeah, well, okay, so... This is a fascinating piece. I've had a lot of conversations on my other podcast about boring protagonist syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I do find that that is the case here. Is it just that Pony Boy is better positioned to be the audience surrogate into this world because there's kind of not that much going on with him? Like, could you have a story written from Johnny's perspective? Or do you need the vantage point of a boring protagonist? Yeah, I mean, I guess the question is we never get to know, right? Right. But I found that the film in particular, and and we'll transition there in a second, I found the film in particular really suffers from Ponyboy as the focus. Oh, hmm. I have thoughts. Because, (laughs) for all of those reasons, because he's not particularly interesting, but here's the thing. You can have a boring protagonist who offers you deep insight. Okay. And that works. Right. But we're not getting that here. We're not getting that here, right? Because when the <laughs> when the protagonist has deep insights, then it's like, oh, I'm actually kind of glad you're boring and you're just telling me the story because your insights mean that you know who the more interesting people are who I want to be paying attention to. Right. Okay. But when you don't have that... No. I found myself trying to race through the parts that were about Ponyboy, frankly, mm-hmm. to get to the stories of the other boys and then finding myself unsatisfied in the end. Yeah, because it has to all come back to Pony Boy. Yeah. Yeah. And the ending is just too easy, right? You've had it's all so of this easy. tragedy. You've had all of this trauma. And it all comes down to everybody seeming to be fine with the fact that Bob is dead and also an English essay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, do you find that the pacing in this book, and it's not something we often talk about, mm-hmm. but I do find that after the events of the church, I feel like, okay, I'm ready to wrap this story up. I don't need the rumble because I feel like the rumble only confirms the ideas that I already had about how these boys have misconstrued where they should be putting their attention and energy. It's almost depressing because it's like, oh yeah, oh you really, you're really not going to learn. Oh, you're not going to learn anything. Okay. Okay. You're not, okay. That's up to you guys to not learn anything. Like, cool. And just to be clear, I do think that there's an authenticity here. Like, I don't yeah. think in real life boys learn lessons. Teenage boys are really annoying, and that is... <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're the worst! <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like, I want the polish in yeah. my media. Like, I don't know that I wanted the authenticity in this moment, because I don't think it's as satisfying. No. Am I owed that? I don't know. Well, you know, I mean, we have to acknowledge that we're old. And <laughs> no, I will not. <laughs> we're doing a YA podcast to feel young. <laughs> that is a bad idea. Doing a YA <laughs> podcast only ever makes you feel old. <laughs> I'm like the mom being like, mm, "Was this a wise idea, boys?" Yeah, boys, you really want to reconsider this. Oh, you're going to take a gun with you when you're wanted for murder? Mm-mm, I think not. <laughs> Well, why did they leave the knife with him in the hospital in the first place? I, sorry, I'm thinking about Dally now, but why do they leave the knife with Dally in the hospital? Mm, as yeah. soon as he asked for the knife, you knew he was going to do something bad. Yeah, it's <laughs> Have true. you met Dally? I only met him 80 pages ago, and I know this is a bad idea. Yeah, that's actually the one sort of astute character observation that Ponyboy makes. He does simplify everyone to the point where Dally is more complicated than Ponyboy is willing to give him credit for. Mm -hmm. And yet, from the immediate introduction, like how Ponyboy views Dally, he actually is spot on that he is a guy who is just always on the hunt for problems. Yep. Yeah. Again, I would have been more interested to know a story about Dally as well. Totally. 
Johnny and, and Dally are the most interesting characters to me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you completely. <laughs> no, I just realized I have a lot of thoughts, but I have a lot of questions about what the backstage experience was of making the film. But I realized I should let us transition to the film before I ask them. And let's do just that then. Okay. Essie Hetton's classic novel comes to the screen, capturing all the intensity, all the excitement, all the emotions of youth. The Outsiders, directed by Francis Coppola. All right, so as we said, The Outsiders, made in 1983 by Francis Ford Coppola. This had a $10 million budget. It grossed 33. It has slightly mixed reviews, a little bit more positive than negative, but really the thing that people honed in on is this is one of the things that contributes to the creation of the Brat Pack in the Mm -hmm. 80s. So we've got C. Thomas Howell as Pony. We've got Rob Lowe as Soda, Patrick Swayze as Derry, Ralph Macchio as Johnny, Matt Dillon as Dally, Diane Lane as Cherry, the only female character that we have not talked about at all, so we should probably make sure to give her a shout out or two. Yeah, sure. She has so much to do. Yikes. Emilio Estevez as Tubit and Tommy Cruz as Steve. I like... These are such, they're such young actors with... They are babies. They're babies, and they have such a variety of backgrounds by this point, and also, like, skill. And they're working with this amazing director, and they're all, I know that they all, like, were living together, and, like, Mm -hmm. it must have been something else. Apparently, it was a very rambunctious set. There was a lot of prank pulling, particularly on C. Thomas Howell, as well as Diane Lane. The kinds of things that create narratives about epic prank wars, which sound enjoyable to read and terrible to probably experience. And the other fun thing is that Ralph Macchio was apparently completely divorced from all of that because he was so into getting Johnny correctly that he was just like, don't involve me in this. Like, I need to live in this character and do it justice. To the point where apparently Francis Ford Coppola also gave him $5 and told him to, like, make his own way through the world for, like, a week. And he had to, like, sleep in a park and use newspaper to stay warm. So there was a little bit of method going on amidst the brand wars. (laughs) Wow. It's Mm -hmm. interesting. I'm One of the reasons I'm curious about the dynamic behind the scenes is because Essie Hinton consulted on this film. Mm Mm-hmm. She apparently helped to co-write the screenplay as well. And while they were making this movie, Coppola gets the idea to make Rumblefish. Okay. And he's like, well, we need to basically use this same set and this same crew. So he and Essie Hinton were writing it every night after shooting. Mm-hmm. They were writing the screenplay for Rumblefish. And so they're like working really closely together. And then you've got the Matt Dillon through line. He's in three of the adaptations of Essie Hinton's right. films. But then you have this fourth adaptation. Uh, That was then This Is Now, which is the book that comes immediately after The Outsiders. Mm -hmm. And no one else is involved in it except Emilio Estevez. He writes it by himself while filming The Breakfast Club. It's just interesting, right? Because there's like this through line of all of these characters who are like actors and writers and characters like spending all this time together. And then you've got like Emilio Estevez like off to the right being like, I'm I'm in this too. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm also making a movie. I mean, it's a little shocking when you see this cast and then you watch it after a very long... I haven't seen this movie in years and years. So I had forgotten that Emilio Estevez and Tom Cruise were in this. And when they appear, and then really, like, Tom Cruise's role is tantamount to a cameo. He's barely in it. Emilio Estevez gets a little bit at the beginning, and then he gets a kind of chunk at the end when Dali kind of starts to spiral and Mm -hmm. Pony is just sort of hanging out with two-bit off to the side. Mm -hmm. But like, they're not great roles. So it almost makes me wonder if Emilio Estevez saw what was happening and then he starts to become more famous and thinks, I'm going to write this meaty thing for myself because I know that I can play in this world. His dad bought the rights to the movie for him, by the way. I mean, it's it's helpful to have that Estevez money. (laughs) (laughs) It really, really is. So I will confess, I found the pacing a little bit problematic in the book, and then I find this almost exacerbated in the film. 
in part, we are watching a two-hour adaptation. I wonder how I would feel about a 90-minute version. So yeah, I am interested to hear from listeners if you've only seen that 90-minute version, which obviously is missing some of these integral scenes. I'm curious to hear your thoughts as to whether you feel like, oh, it's actually kind of terrible and it's missing a lot of stuff. But uh, I find the movie long and not always entertaining. Yeah, I agree 100%. (laughs) I said to you before we started recording that I was really shocked by how not emotionally affecting I found the film at all. Yeah. I'm still invested in Johnny. I actually think that Ralph Macchio is doing great things in this Mm -hmm. role. Mm -hmm. I find C. Thomas Howell just out of his depth. Yes, agreed. Totally agreed. And and maybe again, this is just because there's not enough to Pony to really Mm -hmm. invest a lot of character work into him but like it really comes down to him dyeing his hair and Mm -hmm. that's kind of the most memorable thing that he's doing in this movie he's just not very strong on the beats like when he cries it feels very Mm. like someone told him to cry and it's a shame because i think the book obviously has so much potential right for emotional resonance yes and everything just falls flat here and i was really surprised yeah, I was surprised. Yeah. Maybe we should have watched the 90-minute version. I just thought if we watched the 90-minute version, all of our critiques would be like, why wasn't this scene in it? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. The distinction between the two is very much like, oh, where are these integral moments yeah. from the book? And this longer novel cut is an attempt to rectify that. Because the 90-minute version was one of those films that was not particularly enjoyed by general audiences, and also not particularly enjoyed by people who love the book. <laughs> right. <laughs> so pleasing no one is what I'm hearing. Yeah, exactly. So that's why, I mean, that's why we we settled on the two-hour version. But yeah, I think it has pacing issues. I think it has just emotional connection or emotional weight issues. And I just, yeah, yeah I don't know. The yeah. cast is all really good. They're all really compelling. I think Tom Cruise is actually much better looking with a big nose. I think he should go back to a big nose. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just like dig through a dumpster, find it, recover it, put it back <laughs> I, on. I bet somebody saved it. Oh, probably. Because you could, <laughs> you could make gross. money off that. Gross, 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 gross. <laughs> but I was saying to Joe, like, it's funny seeing how Tom Cruise, he already is, even at this stage of his career. He's like... He's barely in this movie, and every time he is in the movie, he's, like, bouncing off the walls with his energy. I mean, it is the character, but also it's a lot of Tom Cruise. Yeah, it's a big performance. Yeah, it doesn't hurt that Steve literally gets to do backflips on the yes. regular. Yes, it's very it's very reminiscent of a certain couch jumping. Just a, just a touch, in hindsight, yeah. <laughs> Is this pre-Scientology for Tom Cruise, by the way? Oh, it, it's always Scientology for Tom Cruise. Oh, really? This early? Mm-hmm. I didn't They know. get them as teenagers, like, as they're breaking big in Hollywood. That's when uh, they nab them, usually. Wow. Mm-hmm. Speaking of other podcasts, the Leah Remini Aftermath podcast is excellent. Yes, yeah. A little bit older, but uh, still worth checking out. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So, Brenna, you mentioned the pool sequence when Mm -hmm. Ponyboy and Johnny get jumped. And I think that this is one of the best shot and most memorable sequences in this movie. I would agree with that, yeah. It's just incredibly evocative with the way that the camera moves around, the way that we've got the mist. As you said, the slowly encroaching pool of blood from the overhead shot, it's It is gorgeous. And I think it really reinforces the reality of Mm -hmm. the bloodshed. Like, this isn't a cutesy little fistfight. Someone is dead. It's an interesting contrast because the very real kind of grittiness of this film is something that it's easy as, you know, like a 37-year-old woman reading this book (laughs) in a townhouse. It's really easy for me to just read the book and kind of skip the violent bits in a way in my inner eye and my imagination the film doesn't let you do that right the film is extremely gritty it's extremely bleak it's extremely gray Mm. yeah the color scheme i mean it looks midwestern in all the right ways but it's also like oh gosh there's no hope here no there isn't it's stifling it's interesting to me that with all that added realism, we don't also have added emotional weight. Like, I would have expected those two things to come together hand in hand. Hmm. 
And I'm not sure why they don't. I was reading contemporary reviews of the film and Roger Ebert, he has this quote and he says, the characters wind up like pictures framed and hanging on the screen. Mm. And I kind of love that because it does look beautiful. And there are like scenes during the rumble, particularly when Uh, you see these. It's almost like tableaus, right? Yeah, they are almost like tableaus, but nothing hangs in the balance. Like I didn't cry when Johnny died. I really expected to. Yeah. um... I was more affected by Dally's death. I found that gratuitous, actually. (laughs) Right. It does feel excessive. And maybe that's just because it's coming right on the back of the rumble, right? Like we get the rumble, they run to the hospital, and then violence ensues almost immediately afterwards. And the police shoot him like 14 times. Oh, yeah. Super egregious. Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's a lot to watch. And that was, to me, much more emotionally affecting. But I do think that in many ways, the aesthetic has overtaken the emotional in this adaptation. I mean, I think it's a credit to Francis Ford Coppola for wanting to tackle this material. And obviously, he did it at the urging of librarians and young people who thought that he was a really good fit for this. Like, he takes the material seriously. But I also think that he's too removed from the visceral. Like, Mm. he's able to capture the violence and the reality of that because he knows how to do that from previous films. Like, this is the man who does The Godfather, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. But... He's not able to tap into that heightened emotionality that comes with the teenageness of Mm -hmm. this text, right? It's almost like you're watching something the way that you would observe a painting in a museum. Like there's just too much distance between the camera and what's meant to be happening. Yes. Yes. I think that's it. Exactly. Now, I will say one thing that did come through quite a bit more strongly in the film than the book is the sheer gayness yes i was hoping we would get here because i was telling (laughs) i was saying to joe off the top i was like do you follow se hinton on twitter and he was like oh no no i don't why what's she done done?" (laughs) and i was saying that she has basically like two bad hot takes and they are i'll start with the more minor one first they are that graphic novels aren't real novels so recently she was embroiled in a controversy because someone asked if she would ever green light a graphic novel adaptation of The Outsiders and she said Mm. no because this is the first real book many kids pick up and uh, she doubled down for a couple days on that so that was fun on her Twitter yeah I bet but the other and much more important to talk about is that S.E. Hinton has really resisted queer readings of this book traditionally and historically not just on her Twitter but in other spaces as well which is interesting because she also professes like a pleasure in writing her own fan fiction So you would think somebody who was like embedded in fanfic communities would recognize that the queering of texts is a really... It's standard. It's a frankly like deeply normal way (laughs) that texts get read, particularly a book like this. You know, one of the things I like about the book and the film is that we see juxtaposed against each other the damage done by toxic masculinity especially the greasers the greasers fight because they don't have anything else right they use their fists because they don't have anything else Mm -hmm. their bodies are are almost their sole possession right like they don't Mm -hmm. have money they don't have privilege they are persecuted as diminished members of society many of them are unhoused or underhoused like they really just don't have access to community or culture but they have their bodies and they fight with their bodies the one thing that they can do is they can fight and the toxicity of that and the way it has damaged all of these boys Mm. is ultimately the sort of missed lesson in johnny's death that is so frustrating and so i really like that discourse juxtaposed against the deep friendships between these boys Mm -hmm. and in the film the way they're able to be physically affectionate with each other as well as violent with each other like there's this tension that i think is a really interesting exploration of masculinity but yeah none of that is interesting without the layer of of queer readings of the way masculinity functions in the text and the film yeah and i wonder if this is what se hinton is pushing back against is the relationship between masculinity and queerness Mm. so this idea that these are greasers these are man's men you know they're 
they're divorced from that sort of feminine quality, which I think is hilarious because A, it's written by a woman, so that's like embedded in the core of this. But also, to be queer does not mean that you are not masculine. And so many of these boys, because they are boys, they are not men. No. They don't know how to express themselves in healthy ways. And that comes back to the fighting, but it also comes back to the kind of homosocial camaraderie that they have and the way that they physically express themselves, like the way they throw their arms around each other, the way they poke and prod at each other, the way that they sleep in the same bed. And sure, you could say this is just comforting notions of boys who aren't being given love by women or parents, but there's also something really gay about it. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Mm Mm-hmm. The fact that Johnny finds such significant and important and lasting comfort in his friendship with Ponyboy. Mm-hmm. They literally run away like lovers to go live in a church and live like a simple life. And here's what I would say. It doesn't have to be queer, right? The no. value of friendship is also worth exploring and talking about. Absolutely. The value of platonic friendship is also important and worth talking about. But mm-hmm. it doesn't preclude a queer reading. Yeah. I don't want Essie Hinton to come out and be like, yep, they're definitely gay. That's yeah, not what I'm yeah, asking that's, for. That's not what we're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> but being so resistant to the idea, I guess I just don't get what you gain from mm-hmm. resisting a kind of reading that might offer just a different way of exploring masculinity from somebody right. who is clearly interested in the multifaceted natures of masculinity. Right. Yeah. And... I mean, just to be clear, in case anybody doesn't know, the minute that a work of fiction or art leaves the hands of its creators, it is no longer up to them how people read it, how they process it, how they discuss it. So despite the fact that S.E. Hinton may not see any kind of queer reading in this text doesn't preclude us from having these discussions. Exactly. And it's important to allow space for readers to bring themselves to the text. Right. I I just don't understand why she cares if Johnny's read as gay. It doesn't change the text at all. I guess Ponyboy maybe has a little bit of romantic interest, sort of, in Cherry. But hmm. ish. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird one. It's very weird and underdeveloped. But, like, if Johnny was gay. It changes absolutely nothing about his story arc, his narrative, anything. Like, I guess I just don't understand why she's defensive about it. I don't understand why she cares. But she cares a lot. I just Googled it and like... It comes up all the time, doesn't it? It comes up all the time. She's got an interview about it in Vulture. She's got an interview in it in the HuffPo. She's got comments on her Twitter. She's got an interview about it in The Advocate. Like, she's everywhere. I'm sorry, but I think the lady doth protest too much. It's just weird. I don't understand why you care. I am going to gently push back on your assertion that it doesn't change anything, though. Because as a queer person, seeing Johnny as a queer man absolutely complicates the tragic notions. And I think it reads more deeply into why he might have issues with his family, why he may feel more comfortable running away from them, and so on. That's her. No, I guess I didn't mean it doesn't... Yeah, like at at the end of the day... I mean, it doesn't change the like the facts in the text, if right. that makes sense. Like, yes. every time she comments on this, she's like, I wrote them, so I should know. And it's oh like, my God, back it doesn't off. actually change any of the like concrete details you put pen to paper about to al- allow that reading. I think what it is, what we're struggling around here is the idea that it makes the text more complicated yes. in unforeseen ways. It allows engagement from potentially a completely different audience or in a different fashion. Well, and also like Essie Hinton, you should be welcoming more complicated readings of this text. Right. More complicated readings of this text are actually extremely generous. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't mean that in a mean way. No, but it's just, I mean. it. Yeah, as we've said, this is a relatively straightforward text. It has some pretty dominant themes that I think everybody can sort of see and unpack in their own English essays. And (laughs) affording it a queer reading just gives you another opportunity to make some interesting arguments. Of course, she had to take it to the extreme as peak straight white lady. Oh no. She tweeted that she's being attacked for being straight. Oh, come on. (laughs) 
I'm sorry, but members of the dominant culture don't get to cry foul that they are being oppressed. Just no. No. <laughs> so stupid. Who's ever been attacked for being straight? Just stop it. You're just embarrassing yourself. It's just so hard to be straight these days, Brenna. Oh my god. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. All this to say, I enjoyed revisiting The Outsiders. I still don't think I have the love and admiration that a lot of other people do. Mm-hmm. I'd be very curious to hear from people who haven't touched this text in a while, whether they still feel as strongly about it, or if maybe they did have primarily nostalgic reactions to it. I would also like to hear about it. And I am very curious about people's alternative readings, let's just say. Because I'm interested in queer readings, but I'm also interested in the way maybe you were a tomboy. Did you Mm. read this book and identify with the boys in a way that you hadn't been able to identify with a character like Cherry, for example? Ooh, she is super unaccessible, hey? Wow, yeah, she is. Well, I mean, again, because she's only written through Ponyboy's perspective, so she just feels she's the perfect woman. Yes. In every way. Straight down to the cherry Corvette. <laughs> it's super disappointing. See, this is me being gender essentialist, but I, I have to admit, I find it really disappointing from a woman writer to have cherry be so... Mm. There's just nothing there. And, no. you know, this is the kind of book that I read at a phase in my life where I was just really bummed out by how boring girl protagonists were in oh, my interesting. teens. And this is not a book that helps you when you're, that's how you're feeling. No, this no. is not going to change your opinion of what girls can be or maybe even should be. And it's basically like, yeah, I'll, I'll say that my boyfriend started the fight in court because that's what he did. But that's the sum total of my agency. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I will say, I think Diane Lane is doing good work with what limited material she has. And I was particularly fond, and maybe it's just because it happens early in the film, but I really like the movie theater. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that the character of Cherry is a spitfire, and I really think that that shines in that particular scene. I agree with you. Also, Diane Lane is just very pretty and very pleasant to watch her on screen. She's just really lovely. And also, you know... It's a very COVID-compliant movie-watching experience. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Don't sit outside. Stay in your car. <laughs> Brenna? Uh, yeah? Would you like to play some YA bingo? I would like to play some YA bingo. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay. YA bingo, my friend. All right. I think that we have dead body. Yes. We have some neglect. Mm-hmm. Johnny is deeply abused. Oh, just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I would say we have a good friendship between Johnny and Ponyboy. Yes, that's true. Can we call it stunt casting when they all turned out to be famous eventually? I mean, at the time the film was made, no, but I absolutely think yes now, so I'll allow it. <laughs> Tom Cruise feels like retcon stunt casting, actually. Right? Like <laughs> They de-aged him and they put him back in the movie. He wasn't <laughs> there originally. <laughs> we just brought him in to yell things. Right. I will put in a road trip as well. Oh, yeah. Good point. Of course. I'm curious. We haven't mentioned it, and it's not quite a coincidental class, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the Gone with the Wind of it all. Oh, yeah. No, I have no idea why they picked Gone with the Wind, but I haven't read it either. So I don't know if there's something inherent in it that would be relevant, but I I don't. Nope. Okay. I haven't read the book. I've seen the movie. Mm-hmm. And the scene where Johnny and Ponyboy kind of stand and look at the sunset is actually mm-hmm. very evocative of the kind of scenes that you would see. Oh, that's cool. Do you remember how it's like, it almost feels artificial? Mm-hmm. Like they're not actually there. It's kind of a matte painting in the back. That's very similar to the Scarlett O'Hara, like, end of act one, I will never go hungry again kind of deal. Cool. Yeah. I didn't realize that, but that's neat. Yeah. It works better in the movie, I think, than in the book. Well, I missed it in the book, but <laughs> here we are. Is that everything? Yeah, I mean, I, I debated whether to say musicality. Mm, for the rumble? Well, one of the other changes that happens in the novel cut is that 
Francis Ford Coppola changes out a traditional score for more period appropriate music from the 60s. Oh, so really? I feel like our cut of the film had a better quote unquote soundtrack to go with it because it had some great music cues. To I it. actually really did like the soundtrack. Yeah, I would buy that for a dollar then. Okay, cool. Well, sell yeah. it to you for 99 cents. Oh, look, I made a penny. <laughs> we don't have those anymore in Canada. No, it's true. <laughs> I kind of think that's it. Yeah, I kind of think that's it. I'm hemming and hawing around this idea of either borrowed time because we sort of know that something bad's going to happen, but it's too Yeah, it's not quite the ticking clock. No. And I'm also kind of, I have to say, like, I'm a little bit an authentic voice for the film version, but Mm. I'm not going to push it. I think that there are a lot of people who watch this film and don't feel that way. So I think in part it's it's my eyes. Right. Okay. Actually, I am going to add one more. And that's mm-hmm. Perfect Date. I was hoping you were going to say Perfect Date. I really do think that the scenes between Johnny and yeah. Pony yeah. when they're at the church are kind yeah. of like the best it's ever going to be for yeah. the two of them. It's where they realize how authentic their friendship is. It's so intimate and close. And there's, you know, they're so able to be physical with each other in a way that I find really lovely, mm-hmm. both in the book and the film. So yeah, yeah I'm by it. Okay. Sadly, it still does not give us a bingo line. Oh, well. <laughs> so, Brenna, this yeah. is our last episode of 2020. I know. Joe, did you have a good Christmas? I did. Folks, we're recording this before <laughs> Christmas happens. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to have a good Christmas filled with lots of eggnog. Yes, and we hope wish for you all a happy new year. I guess we won't talk to the audience before the new year. No, but we will have a new mini so dropping in the first week of January. And Brenna, this is a you pick. This is a me pick. It's Saved by the Bell. And not the old one. Not the old one. <laughs> and Joe is pretty adamant that he's not going to be going back and watching any old episodes. He's Absolutely just going to watch it straight. So yeah. I think that'll be fun because Joe will only have the context of the new and I will have the context of literally every iteration of Saved right. by the Bell that there has ever been, which is many. Right. To clarify, I do know the Elizabeth Berkeley pill incident. It's a good episode. Really yeah. good episode. But I also watched The College Years. I watched, hey, second Leah Rimini reference of the episode. I watched wow. the arc where they are like beach employees and Leah Rimini oh. and Zach have a an affair. Hmm. I've watched The New Class. I've watched it all. I don't even know what you're talking about anymore. I know. So... <laughs> The reboot we was something we were going to stay away from because it was giving Joe hives, but then it got really, really good reviews. Yeah, as we are apt to do, we stay away from things we don't think we'll like, and then people tell us, no, it's actually good, you should take a look, and then we do. Yes, so yeah. that's what's coming up in our new mini-sode. Mm-hmm. But Bretta, what's our first full-length book of 2021? Uh, I feel like... On some level, I have suffered enough, and I can't believe you're making me start 2021 this way. So excited for you. It's Twilight. It's Twilight! (laughs) We have been threatening to do this to Brenna for so long, and the time has come. If you want to prepare yourself, just go and listen to After. It's going to be a great primer. Remember that new girl animated gif that goes around Twitter all the time, and it's like Zoe Deschanel going... I hope you like feminist rants because they're kind of my thing. (laughs) I'm so excited to tackle this with you because I have a lot of thoughts independent of even how terrible it is to women just as a vampire narrative. So we get to talk vampires. We get to talk feminism. This is going to be great. I still can't believe you're doing this to me. Anyway, if you want to send us some, I don't know, excited tweets because we're finally doing twilight uh hello send me some slash fic of a pony boy and <laughs> oh <Johnny>. yeah <laughs> yeah let's let's and you know what just go ahead and cc se hinton on those tweets <laughs> <laughs> you can find us at hashtag hkhs pod on the twitter joe how do they grab you i am at b stole my remote and that's the letter b and i'm at brenna c gray that's gray with an a and if you have something longer like your own johnny pony boy slash fiction mm-hmm. no dally though no you can find us at hkhspod at gmail.com 
Yes. And uh, yeah, I guess that's that, Joe. So you're reading Twilight, you're watching Saved by the Bell, mm-hmm. you're hopefully getting some quiet time to relax and taking care of yourself. And whether you're with family or not this week, we're thinking about you. It's a weird Christmas. I hope it was a good one for you. Mm-hmm. And I hope you have a happy new year. And yeah. until next time, I'll see you on the page. I'll see you on the screen in 2021. Oh my god, finally. Uh, Let it be done. (laughs) 